We're getting towards the end now. It's been quite a, a long ride, almost a year now that we've been studying this gospel, and it's been good. But we are coming close to, to the conclusion as we look at verses 12 through 25 today of Mark chapter 14. Um, a package came in the mail this week for Rachel and I. It came from the Free Methodist Foundation office in Spring Arbor, Michigan, and it was prepared by an attorney there. It was a, a copy of our will, our, or each of our wills, something that we had needed to update for some time, not because we have vast assets, but we do have a fair number of children, and it's good to keep up on such things. And they say not enough people have a will prepared. And I would certainly uh, commend to all of you to be mindful of that. I, as a pastor, often see what goes on within families when the wills are not prepared. And it's often not good. So it's a reminder to me of the importance of encouraging people to, to have a will. But it also ties in, interestingly enough, with the message for this week. Um, because a will is not a legal document until the person who creates it and has signed it has died. It doesn't have any real effect until the death of the person who prepared it. And this is an ancient legal truth. It's been uh, around for, for thousands of years. In fact, even the Bible speaks of this truth in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 in 17, the writer of Hebrews there says, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death. So it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So we've prepared these wills. We will have them signed and witnessed. And yet they'll sit in a safe deposit box or a fire safe somewhere until one of us dies. And then it immediately goes into effect. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that's how this works. And thousands of years ago, that's how it worked. Um, and the writer of Hebrews mentions this little legal note because it's referring to Jesus and what Jesus did, particularly with what we call the new covenant or what he institutes at the Last Supper. So we're going to look at this here in Mark chapter 14. Uh, Jesus is going to share his will, so to speak. And he's even going to put his signature, in a way, on this document. And he's telling his disciples that it's soon going to be executed. Sometimes a will is called a last will and testament. You've probably heard that term before. The words testament and will can almost mean the same thing. And the word testament and covenant is also similar. They are speaking of a legal contract. And I sometimes say that in the case of a covenant, it's a, it's a contract with God involved. So in our text this morning, Jesus is going to reveal to his disciples that there's a new covenant, a new testament, a new promise. And the writer of Hebrews is going to compare that with, with a will. 
And through the act of sharing this bread and this cup with his disciples, Jesus, in a sense, signs his will and says it's going to take effect when he dies. And that's going to happen in just a matter of hours. So in this passage, we're going to see first a drama. There's going to be some drama. Then there's going to be some doctrine. We're going to have to explain the doctrine going on here. And then there's going to be a distribution. With every will, there is a distribution. So that's where we're going to to go with this today. But let's begin with the drama. Mark chapter 14, and we're going to begin with verse 12. This drama unfolds here because despite what some may think, Jesus is still in command. Despite what some may think, Jesus is still in command. Look at verse 12. It says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will we have where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Let's give a little background here to this. In in case you haven't been here or um, we just need to bring you up to speed. The disciples and Jesus have arrived in Jerusalem in time for the Passover and also at just the time when the chief priests and the scribes are trying to work out a way to have Jesus killed. The wolves, we said last week, are circling in for the kill. It said they were acting like uh, in a stealthy kind of manner, looking for a way to kill Jesus. And in the midst of this, they are here to celebrate the Passover. And the disciples say, you know, we're not from Jerusalem. These guys are from up north. They're from Galilee. They don't uh, live in Jerusalem. They probably don't have maybe many friends or family in Jerusalem. But now they're here and they've got to celebrate the Passover. And they've got to find a place to go. They're saying, you know, this is a crowded city. There's a lot of people here. We need a table for 13. Did you make reservations, Jesus? It's like showing up at Bob Evans on Mother's Day. At 12.30 in the afternoon, looking for a table for 13 people. You're going to wait a while, aren't you? And these disciples are saying to Jesus, what what are we going to do? And Jesus says, don't worry. Don't worry. I've got this covered. It's going to be okay. Here's what I want you to do, Jesus says. Look at verse 13 now. He sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you to a large upper room furnished and ready there, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. These are some peculiar instructions Jesus gives to his disciples. And maybe we are not able to see it because we're kind of removed from the situation. But first of all, finding a man carrying a jar of water would be extremely unusual. That was the job assigned generally to women in that culture. So to find a man carrying this jar of water would have been been immediately the, the, the mark that they needed. Okay, there's a sign here. Let's follow him. And they're supposed to now follow him into this house and to just go to the guy who owns the house and say, your guests have arrived. Show us to the table. Sounds kind of presumptuous, doesn't it? But the point here is very clear. 
The disciples have seen this sort of thing before from Jesus. They go along with it, and sure enough, everything happens. Just the way Jesus said it would. There's the man with the water jar. He leads them to the house, just where they need to go. They go to the door, and they find the man there, and he welcomes them in and says, I have a table prepared for you. Just like Jesus said it would happen. The point here is, despite all appearances to the contrary, despite the fact that Judas has agreed to to betray Jesus and and the the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes are, are conspiring to kill him and everything seems to be coming crashing in, despite appearances, everything is going according to plan. Circumstances are being coordinated behind the scenes in ways that nobody can see or or explain. The enemies of Jesus certainly are moving things into position, but God is also moving things into position. And if you find that kind of hard to grasp, it's okay. I don't think we're meant to fully understand it. But I think it's fascinating that in Acts chapter 2, when when, when Peter is speaking at Pentecost, in verse 23, he declares, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So God is at work in all of this, and yet the enemies of God are at work in all of this. And we're not going to solve the mystery today of God's sovereignty and human free will, but instead I think we've got to see that God has a plan, and he knows how it's going to be accomplished. And even as evil and suffering are pressing in on all sides, God is going to make his way. And I think that truth can propel us In any circumstance that we face, whatever it is that you're going through right now, remember that. That God has a plan and that his plan takes into account all that is wrong with your situation right now. And that he will see you through. Trust him that he will work it out That despite all circumstances, despite all appearances, Jesus is still in command. Well, let's look at the next section now. Because despite all circumstances, uh, and despite what some might think, Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what Judas is going to do. Look at verse 17. It says, and when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who was eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him and one after another, is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus knows just what Judas is up to. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't mention Judas by name. He just says one of the twelve. One of you is going to betray me. And one by one, they each deny this. They say, well, you, you think me? Not me. Of course not me, Jesus. Judas is lying. 
directly to the face of Jesus. He realizes Jesus is on to some kind of conspiracy, but maybe he still thinks Jesus couldn't possibly know which one of them it is. But Jesus has found him out. His heart starts to pound. His palms start to sweat. As Judas is ensnared in the age-old trap of deceit. He no longer knows whether truth or fiction is coming out of his own lips. He's been ensnared by lies. Once a person abandons the truth, they become capable of almost anything. And Jesus refuses to speak Judas's name. He just calls him out by saying, the one. The one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. And then he pronounces that terrible woe. We, we don't ever want to hear the word woe coming out of Jesus' mouth. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had never been born. can't imagine what it would feel like to sit there and hear Jesus say to me, it would be better if you had never been born. Judas is a long ways down the road already here, and he has decided to go ahead with his plan to betray Jesus. His heart is a heart of stone. But for all of us, I think there is a a warning to be found that when we stand before Jesus, and we all will one day, don't you want to hear those words, well done, good, and faithful servant? And not the words, it would have been better if you had never been born. But Judas's heart is of stone, and he has given himself over to the devil. And the drama is now in full force as this story races towards its climax. That's the drama. Now for the doctrine. We find the doctrine in this account in verses 22 through 25. So let's look at that now. Verse 22, it says, And as they were eating, he, that is Jesus, took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching a very important doctrine here. A doctrine is a a basic belief, a truth about our faith that is important to understand. And Jesus is giving this final doctrinal lesson to his disciples. 
in this, in, with, this, with this object lesson, this very visual and experiential, not just visual, but, but very much all the senses involved, the taste and the smell of this bread in this cup. He says to them, that wine you just drank, that's my blood. Now that would be a shock, I think, to any of us if we weren't so familiar with the practice of the Lord's Supper that we've, some of you maybe have, have, have been a part of all of your life. But to, for a Jew to be told, you just drank my blood. I mean, that's scandalous. It was very clearly uh, outlined in their law that they were not to have anything to do with blood, that the, the blood of the animal was to be fully drained before they consumed the meat And Jesus now says to them, you have just eaten my flesh and you you drank my blood. What are they, what is he talking about? Well, there's some doctrine here. And that doctrine is summed up in verse 24. Look at it again. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. Some manuscripts say new covenant. He says, which is poured out for many. And now let's go back to where we started. A covenant is a promise. It's made by God, and, and it involves God. And it's, remember, it's, it's, it's like a testament. It's like a will. Jesus is sharing his will, his testament, which he says will soon be sealed with his blood. Now, the first thing a person notices when they, when they get a Bible, when they look at the Bible and they start to figure out the Bible, you'll realize it's in two parts, Right? There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Or maybe more accurately, we could call it the First Covenant and the Last Covenant. And actually, there are more covenants. I won't go into all the the details now. Jesus makes, or God makes, uh, covenant promises with with Noah and with Abraham and, and with Moses and with David. But... Let's not get too bogged down in all of that right now. Let's, let's, let's just realize that each of these covenants are, are a little bit different, but they all involve a promise from God revealing something important about who God is and how he relates to his people. And throughout the Old Testament, there are all these covenants, of, uh, these promises from God with, with his people, and yet there is repeatedly mention made of a new covenant. A new covenant that is to come. A covenant that is to surpass all the other covenants. That covenant was best described in Jeremiah chapter 31. It says, Therefore this is the covenant that I made with the house of Israel with, after the, those days, declares the Lord. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. <coughs> he says, And they will no longer each shall each uh, teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's the promised new covenant, the, the, the final promise of God, the final revelation of God and who he is and what he has done and how he is bringing us back into a right relationship with him. And there's so much doctrine and theology in all of this. I, I, I get excited, but I don't want to get too bogged down in the details. Read Hebrews. Hebrews chapters 8, 9, and 10 describe all of this in such wonderful detail. 
But the overall message and the, 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 the thing to remember about this covenant, this new covenant, this new promise, this new testament, this will, is that it is a message of grace, of, of incredible grace. And we often use the word grace to, to or we, we define the word grace by saying God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. And really, that's what is being imparted here through this will, isn't it? God's riches of forgiveness, of new life, of new hope, of redemption, of restoration. All of this is coming to us, the recipients, because of what Christ does on the cross. It goes into effect when he dies. This supper that he, he is instituting is almost like his signature on the document. And when we share in this supper, we become, in a sense, the beneficiaries of this will, a will that is now in effect because he has died and he has risen again. And when a will is being executed, there's a distribution of the assets a distribution of everything that's described within the will. All that the, the one who uh, has died has left behind and how it is distributed to the recipients. So we've seen the drama, we've studied the doctrine, and now let's consider the distribution. The distribution. No two wills are exactly the same, but many follow a standard form, and uh, there's something standard... I'm sorry, there's nothing really standard about this will that Jesus leaves. The distribution is quite unique. And it's really quite amazing. Other people have done some strange and creative things with their wills. Now, your attorney will probably discourage you from trying such things. But people still like to be creative and leave surprises. I read about somebody in Lisbon, Portugal, who maybe didn't have any children, and if they did, they must not have liked them very much, because they had a lot of money, but they didn't want to leave it to any heirs, so they decided to, to get out the, the phone book in Lisbon and just pick 70 names at random and say, this is, this is who gets it all. That's one way to do it, I guess. But isn't it good to know that when it comes to the distribution of God's riches, there is no limit on the number of people who can benefit. Jesus doesn't have to just pick a few names at random. This gift is for you. This gift is for the whole world. You have not been left out. And he wants us to get that word out. You know how in the newspapers they sometimes have those legal notices Things that have been left to somebody. Maybe there's money that you have in a bank account somewhere that you've apparently forgotten about and they have to put the notice in the paper to let you know it's there. Well, put the notice in the paper. God's riches at Christ's expense are there for everyone. No one has been left out. Back in 1928, there was a man in Britain who left a half a million pounds to the government of the United Kingdom. Maybe he just felt like he hadn't paid enough taxes yet. I don't know. But he left a half a million pounds 
to the government of the United Kingdom. But there was one stipulation in his will which said that it could only be used to pay off the national debt. And, one more stipulation, it could only be used to pay off the national debt once the national debt was low enough that it could be paid off completely with the amount that he had left behind. You understand that? So that was almost 100 years ago, and from what I just read this week online, that money is still sitting in the bank, but it has now grown to 350 million pounds, which is probably over $400 million or so, which is a whole lot of money, but nowhere near enough to pay off the debt. Praise God that the will of Jesus does not have such stipulations. Left to ourselves, we each carry an insurmountable debt, a spiritual debt that we will never be able to pay. And the only hope we have is that Jesus covers it all. And he does. That is what he has promised us through this covenant, that when he offers to forgive us, his forgiveness is full. This, there's, there's no sense in which, well, we got to pay down our part until his part kicks in. No. We come to him and he says, it's for you. This blessing is for you. One more point about the distribution of this will as we bring this to a close. As disciples of Jesus... And I'm not just talking about the 12 who were there at the supper with him. I'm talking about all of us who are followers of Jesus, who have been recipients of this great will. As disciples of Jesus, we become the executors. It becomes our job to spread the word to all the other potential beneficiaries, to let them know that this is available, that Christ has done this. We have been commissioned to take notice to everyone everywhere of the great grace of God. Let's do that faithfully. And let's see all the beneficiaries of this will receive the riches of God. Gracious Lord, I thank you for what Jesus has done for us. And I pray that you will reach each of us where we're at. And help us to see that as long as there is breath within our lungs, we are still able to receive this great gift. And Father, I pray that this distribution will continue uh, more than ever before. I pray that if anyone here has not yet received that, that they will trust in you. And take this great gift to heart. And Lord, help us to share it with others. We know that this comes at great cost, that Christ gave his life, that he had to die for this to take effect. We thank you for that gift. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And...